Um, if you're, um, I got to think here for it. Now I put my foot in my mouth. This is always what happens when you name names. Um, Leela Burton. Yeah, Leela Burton would be another one. So Leela, who else? Bobby, I got it. Bobby Blaine and Annette. Annette, yes. Jackson, she watches every week too. Dan. Dan Weimer, awesome. Well, praise the Lord. Dan, we're glad to have you too. Randy and Julie are with us, so that's good. Awesome. So, well, hey guys, we're going to, more than I expected actually. So, um, we're going to do something a little unorthodox, and let's go back. So we're talking about traveling through time anyway, right? John was transported to the future. Um, well, I'm going to transport you back to um, the uh, first church um, that we talked about, which is Ephesus, uh, because I realized last week that I neglected to finish up my outline uh, for the, for the uh, first church. So that will throw a monkey wrench in those of you that are following with outlines, I know. So, um, so let me start by asking, does anyone need, and if you're, if you're online, you can get both of these outlines tonight. Does anybody need the, the, uh, the church of, uh, Ephesus or seven churches part one? All right. So I'm not going to go through all the, the outline. Of course, I'm just going to finish up where we left off, but, uh, here you go. And then I'll, I think I have time. Hopefully here, I'll just give those to you and you can distribute those. Uh, I hope I have time to finish this and the second church so it'll be like two conclusions at once never done this in my life so who knows how this will go um but i'm going to try to circle back around i actually thought about just doing this myself online and this as a supplement putting it up but um i never got to that either so so here we are so what we're going to do i tell you what i am going to do is uh starting in revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 Read verses 1 through 7, and we'll pick up the conclusion of the matter on our first outline, and then we will continue reading into the, into, um, the second church, uh, and we will then conclude the outline there uh, tonight, time permitting. It gives us one hour and five minutes. I think we can do that. I really do. All right, so Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we'll be looking at Ephesus. That's the first church in Smyrna, the second church, uh, and uh, then we will uh, have a comprehensive study of both churches completed. So Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we remember the introduction of Revelation uh, chapter 1. And we, I'm not going to review that much tonight other than just to remind you that there is a blessing, it says in verse 3 of chapter 1, that to he that readeth, they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And so uh, it's important that we understand that. This is a, a book that we can, we can learn from. This study is called What We Need to Know Before We Go. And, uh, and we saw that John was transported to the future. Uh, he was physically on the Isle of Patmos, but then in verse 9 uh, it te- tells us that um, he was there for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But then he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and heard behind me a great voice as of one... Uh, as of a trumpet, so suddenly he was in um, the future. He was he was caught up, just like the church will be in chapter four and verse one. And so he goes forward to the future and sees what's going on in that day. So here we are in chapter two and verse one. I'm fast forwarding after he reveals um, 
that Jesus is in the midst of the seven churches, the seven golden candlesticks, uh, the seven stars, which are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven golden candlesticks, which are the seven churches. The last verse in chapter 1, he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, saith uh, he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So now he's not just standing, he's walking. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and that thou hast uh, tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake uh, hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and, um, and repent. We just talked about that. And do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right, so by way of remembrance, we we covered, well, I had it on. It's not going. I wonder why. We, we've covered um, uh, <clears throat> the uh, first point is the revelation of our relationship, the Christ's relationship to the angel. Uh, the first thing you notice is this is under the angel of the church of Ephesus, and each church was represented. There we go. Each church is represented by an angel. Uh, I'm going to skip past all this. There we go. Um, this is all review, so I'm going to keep moving through all this. Uh, seven churches. There we go. So we were talking about that. We talked about Christ's relationship to our angel. Uh, we also saw um, uh, Christ's relationship to the churches. Uh, and Ephesus had, had a good work going there. Ephesus tried those who were false, right, and, and were not. God liked that. Uh, and then there was a rebuke, and that's where I want to pick it up, um, Christ's relationship to our works. So let me get to that. The recognition of good work. So uh, let me make sure I'm in the right spot here. Yes. So uh, and we took a little bit of time on this point, and we saw that Ephesus had good works. They were a busy church. If you remember, I talked to you about um, you know how busy they were. And I ran through a, a I talked about how uh, they had so much activity going on that uh, it was incredible and it sounded a lot like HBF uh, going you know six or seven days a week in ministry. Uh, they had good labor. They they were they were doing a good work, um, and it was appear it would appear that their labor historically was off to a good start. But in all of that activity, um, you know, there was something lost in the act in all that activity, and that was the first love that they had for the Word of God. And we do not see the blessing on the Church of Ephesus because they lost their first love. So Paul would later uh, write to the Ephesians, and he prayed that they would have more light and more love and I, I showed you that and the verse reference there was ephesians three seventeen through 19 where paul said that christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height 
and know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, I also talked about how the Ephesians, they endured trials. Uh, Romans 5.3, uh, they had tribulation. Um, and we know that tribulation works patience. We saw that Ephesus had tried those who were false um, and found them liars, and God commended them for that. So they had good works going for them. Uh, and I showed you some verses in the New Testament where Paul warned of those that would enter and harm the church in Acts 20, 29 through 30, First uh, Corinthians 14, 37. Uh, you are to discern those spirits. In um, verse uh, 1 of First John 4 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Uh, and it's recorded in Revelation 2, 6 that they agreed with God about Nicolaitans, which means, uh, you know, Nico, which is conquer, and Laos is the laity. These would conquer the laity. Uh, Nico comes from the Greek word Nike, or victory. And uh, and apparently there was some desiring to establish a priest system similar to that of the Old Testament because they say they are Jews and are not. Uh, and we followed uh, Jesus' example, uh, who made himself of no reputation in Philippians 2.7, but took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So the priest that we follow is Jesus Christ, who is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, uh, and not the uh, any other priesthood, because Jesus Christ is better than the law. So this activity um, had gone on uh, from the time of the first century in Ephesus all the way to this current hour through the Roman church, um, through the process of what's called apostolic succession, which we do not... Uh, adhere to because the apostles uh, were done in the first century after uh, God used them. And then, of course, we moved on to uh, the New Testament um, uh, mysteries that God had revealed to Paul and the bishops and the deacons, the evangelists that God provides for the church. So God says twice that he hates the teaching in Revelation 2.6 and Revelation 2.15. Uh, and he said that, that these are things that he hates did you know that God hates some things? He says in verse 6, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And uh, and so that's very clear. Verse 15, he says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So in both of those uh, cases, he says he hates those things. So we want to make sure that we are not uh, about those things. So that leads me to the last point of study here, and that's point C, uh, the rebuke for wondering. Uh, the rebuke for wondering, uh, and that is is way, where we are now. So uh, the rebuke for wondering, that is, this will finish us up for this first church, which I neglected to do a couple of weeks ago. So in verses 4 and 5, um, you can see that the Bible says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Their first love didn't leave them, they left it. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that you know it's you don't want to lose your first love like the church of Ephesus did. Uh, but they left, and it's easy to walk away from our first love while we're busy uh, laboring for Jesus, right? That's basically what they were doing. They were busy laboring for Jesus, and they walked away from their, their first love. So it's clear... It's a clear call to return to intimacy with Christ. Uh, you know, what is your first love? What's your relationship with Christ and his word? And it's easy to rest in our good works for God, uh, but we've got to strive to walk by.
by faith, not just by sight. So there's a saying, it's much harder to deal with success than it is with failure. And uh, that is a very true statement. So this church that seems successful is struggling uh, because they've left their first loves. So we don't want that to happen in our lives. So uh, look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with me. Keep your finger here, obviously, in Revelation 2. And we'll come back to that here in just a moment. But uh, 1 Corinthians 13 um, is, this is a practical thing I want to just throw out as we consider this. And I want to ask you how, how your love meter is running. Because this is something that you can apply uh, both in the church and in all your relationships. And in verse 1, Paul says, I speak uh, with a tongue, though I speak with the tongue, uh, tongues, plural, of men and angels, and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Uh, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith uh, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, the guy just did that this week. He burned his body. He says, you know what? If I don't have charity, if I have charity, I'm nothing. So it doesn't really matter what your sacrifice is if you aren't filled with love, right? And so charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. Whether, whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether it be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, but we prophesy. We know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I uh, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so he talks about. Uh, for now, uh, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, like John in Revelation. Now I know in part. But then I shall. Uh, but then shall I know, even as I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. The great, uh, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Okay, so when you look at that passage, especially verses one through three, it's kind of like a, a measuring stick. You can actually look and, and say, you know, how am how is my love meter doing? Um, you know, do I have charity? Um, you know, and you can see what it, you know that what it doesn't look like. But when you get down to verse eight. Uh, it says, you know, charity never fails, and you want to have charity. Um, and, you know, a lot of weddings, they talk about that. Uh, verse 4, charity suffereth long. Are we long-suffering? Are we kind? Uh, are, do we envy not? You know, do we vaunt ourselves or not? Are we puffed up? Uh, if, if we're having problems with those things, then we're not being full of charity. Do we behave ourselves unseemly, seek things that aren't our own? Uh, do we get easily provoked? We're not patient. Do we think evil thoughts? Do we rejoice not? Do we rejoice in iniquity? You know, those are things that we wouldn't do if we're, if we're allowing charity to rule. So these are things that are are important for victory. And of course, the one that near the last there, it's, it's rejoice in the truth. Right? We need to rejoice in the truth. We need to believe all things, bear all things, hope all things, endure all things, and we know that God's charity will never uh, fail. Another thing that we can do is is a fruit inspection. If you go to Galatians chapter Five and verse 22, and these are very simple but very profound and practical points. Um, you know, how is it the charity in your life? The, the great commandment is to love God 
and to love one another. And if we're not doing that, then it doesn't matter how busy we are in ministry, we are going to get off track and get derailed. We're going to lose our first love. And so uh, Galatians chapter 5, many of you are familiar with this passage, deals with the fruit of the Spirit. Before we jump into that fruit in verse 22, I would remind you of uh, what it says in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Have you ever ever seen a dog fight? They get together and they go for the necks and they they bite and they devour one another. And uh, he's like, you know what? You're going to eat each other up. Have you ever seen people that that they they just they just get so contentious that they just devour one another? They're just eating each other alive with their words and what have you. But the cool thing about this passage is he he turns it on a dime. He says, "This I say then." Walk in the Spirit. So instead of doing that, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That biting and devouring of one another is simply the flesh. And if you think you're different than everybody else, you're not, because verse 17 says, The flesh lusts against the Spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit, capital S, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these three, or these is not three, and these are contrary, the Spirit and the flesh. Uh, one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Oh, man, what a bummer. That's like all of us, right? Our, our flesh has gotten in the way. But, the beautiful but in verse 18, but if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law, right? And so, are you led of the Spirit? Well, the Spirit of God's in you. Why, why wouldn't you be led of the Spirit? And I'm not going to go through the works of the flesh, but if you look at the works of the flesh, uh, verses 19 and 20, um, in 21, you're going to see some, there's 18 there that you can find in 2 Timothy uh, 3, 4 as well. There's 18 attributes like the Antichrist. They look pretty ugly. Um, but when you get to the ver- the nine fruit of the Spirit in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And so um, you're not under the law. And you're free from the law because of the Spirit of God that dwells in us. And so, um, man, this is beautiful. And they that have that that are Christ have, it's already done, we've crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, which we do, let us also walk in the Spirit. That's what Paul's saying. Because you actually do have the Spirit in you, then walk in that. Walk in the Spirit. So there should be uh, love. Again, love is important. Uh, joy. And it's not the fruits, by the way. Notice in verse 22, it's the singular fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace. And in our discipleship lesson, you guys know that we took look at those things and we noticed that, well, those are uh, inward and they're also Godward. But long-suffering and gentleness and goodness, well, those things are, you know, those are things that you can see in our lives that are noticeable outwardly. Faith, uh, and then it says, um, uh, faith and meekness and temperance that's governing us in our flesh and against such there is no law so how does our life look well this is really what's happened with the, the the people of Ephesus is once we get away from the word of God once we get away from Jesus Christ guess what we lose the fruit and that first attribute is love right charity uh, believe with all things I hope with all things Love God, keep his commandments, uh, and before you know it, uh, you know, you're in a situation where you can be working for God, but you've lost the love of God. 
and then you're, it doesn't matter how much work you're doing. There's no blessing. I was just visiting with someone today, and we were talking about how much, how, what a blessing it is to know the certainty of the words of truth in the King James Bible. I mean, I can't tell you how important it is. It's just monumental. However, just because you have, uh, you know that God's words are preserved and you have the perfect word, it doesn't make you perfect. Just because you know that. You have to, we have to apply it. So it's possible someone can have a corrupt Bible, but have a, have an incorrupt faith. And so it happens all the time. And because people get arrogant. Knowledge puffeth up. Charity edifies. So it's, it's monumentally important that people who have the right knowledge do the right work. So I'm not saying don't work. You do have to work. We're saved unto good works. If you have the right knowledge, you need to work. Because knowledge will just puff you up. Charity is what ed- builds up. Uh, and But we're to edify. Ephesus, that's the command that Paul gave to Ephesus. Edify one another in, remember what he said? Let's look it up. I'm, I don't actually have this. It's off the top of my head. So I'm going to have to look it up. Edify one another. Uh, I'm hoping I've got it highlighted so I can find it quickly. That's okay. I'll find it quickly anyway. Hang on, give me just a second. Edifying of the body of Christ. Did you find it? Hmm. Yes, that's it. There's another verse as well, but this is good. For the, the this is what the, the the body is here for: for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. There's another verse that says, "Edify one another in love." Uh, chapter five and four start talking about the walk. Um, Ephesians four two. It says, uh, "This there is one body, one spirit, even as you are all called, and one hope, one calling." No, that's not one word, one faith. Um, First Thessalonians. Let me look. Five eleven through. No, um, there it is. I see it. Yeah, there it is. Verse 16 of chapter 4. Well, in verse 2, chapter 4, um, it says, uh, With all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Right? So we, we forbear. You ever have to forbear someone? Right? You forbear one another in love. And then you get to chapter 16, which is after uh, what we were just talking about a, a little bit ago, the perfecting of the saints, or chapter 4, I'm sorry, 4.16, uh, just past what Bob was pointing out um, uh, about the uh, Ephesians 4. It says in verse uh, 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You get down to verse um, um 16, he says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by every joint supplieth according to the effectual working of the measure of every part 
make it increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Right? So now let me just rewind the tape of what we were just talking about in Ephesus. This is written to Ephesus. And the, the church at Ephesus is, is built upon the fact that these people love each other and they build one another in love. Uh, they, they forbear one another in love, right? And so this is a big deal. If you go to chapter 5 and verse, uh, verse 2, he says in verse 1, Be there for followers of God as dear children and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So what ends up happening is they lose their first love. They lose their first love. They're to edify one another with love. And it's a great commandment. Love God, love one another. So that had been that had been corrupted. Even though they did good works, they weren't they weren't full of charity. Charity never fails. They're gonna fail if they don't get back to charity. Okay, so um I just want to show you that. that's just really practical when you think about that and, and how they started well. They did run well, right? They edified one another in love. They built each other up. Knowledge puffeth up. Charity edifies. Getting back to Corinthians, um, you know, knowledge puffs up. So the love is what really builds you up. You need the right knowledge for sure. I am not espousing don't have good knowledge and just be full of love. That will also lead to disaster. But there are people that have a better love than people with knowledge. So you can find arrogance in proud people with knowledge, and they're not any more effective than someone who doesn't have all the knowledge, but they have a really sincere heart, and God will use them beyond people that have the right knowledge. Isn't that sad? So you don't want to be that people, right? You don't want to be like the church of Ephesus, and you don't want to be like the church of Corinth, right, to where you, you get so far out into, you know, we just take anything goes when the whistle blows. This is America today, right? Anything goes in the church, you know, whatever. Well, God says, God forbid, you know, that you don't love me at that point. And so you love yourselves. And that's, that's as perverse as, as, uh, as anything. So we don't want that either. All right. So back in Revelation chapter two and verse five, we, we don't want to lose, um, the love, our love for God. But he says, go, go back and then do, verse five says, do the, the first works. Do the, the things that you were doing at first, or else I'll come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Go back to the fundamentals, right? The fundamentals. So, uh, again, I'll just re- appeal to a conversation. This is so fresh to me today. I just had a conversation. So this is what I'm saying. So you can appeal to the, the, the knowledge of the Great Commission, but or forget the Great Commandment, or not extend a great invitation, right? These are fundamentals of the faith. And yet, when you've made your on one and you forsake the others, you're not going to win, right? So it's like blocking and tackling or shooting, right? It doesn't matter how good you are of an athlete if you forget how to do the fundamentals. Go back and do the first works, and then I'll bless you. All right, so point D. Let's look at this because i got to keep moving. The relevance, the, revel, the, the relevance of revelation here in Ephesus, in Ephesus is the reward of remembering and repenting. There's a reward to this. Remember from where, thou, uh, where you've fallen, right? Uh, do you love God? Uh, do you love people? And do you love spending time with God and his people? Those are good questions. Um, and then repent. Go back to the first works. And when uh, and when was the last time you shared the gospel? Let me back up. I'm a little ahead of myself. So just a practical sense, if we say we love God 
and we know that God loves people, then we're going to be about evangelism. Good discipleship, we just talked about this last week with Tom Gang when he was here Saturday. Good, good, good evangelism is good discipleship. We make disciples to make, um, uh, how did he say that? We make disciples to, yeah, that's it. We, we disciple to make, to, we evangelize to make disciples, make disciples to evangelize. That's what he said. Yeah, so that's another way of saying good discipleship is good evangelism. It all is one. It's not one or the other. It's both. So you can't say, oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and then never lead people to Christ or share the gospel. You can't lead anyone to Christ, frankly. All you can do is share the gospel. God will open up doors and people will get saved. So really all your responsibility is is, is to share the good news. Uh, that's the fundamental thing that a disciple does. The fundamental thing that any disciple does Jesus got his 12 together, and he sent them out two by two. And, and after his ascension, he sends them out. And all they're doing is sharing that Jesus Christ is alive. Now, all the doctrine that we teach is wrapped up in that, for sure. There's a lot of information in that awesome good news message, and we should be aware of every bit of it. But at the end of the day, it's of no value if we're not out actively sharing the gospel with lost people. I mean, what kind of hypocr- hypocrisy is that? Yay, we're going to heaven, but we don't care about anybody else? I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's absurd. And, uh, and God says, yeah, it's so absurd, it makes me sick. It makes me want to blow the candle out and vomit. <laughs> so so that's, that's, that's what Jesus says, not me. I mean, that's, that's uh, the stuff that he gets sick over. So, uh, so we need to make sure we're about that. And I know in this church we are about that. So, and I think we probably still, by the way, just as I'm throwing that out there, we still have some some opportunities to adopt a street. So if the Lord's calling you, uh, see uh, Pam Jackson, and she will help assign you a seat. I'm not saying that to guilt trip anybody, but if there's if you're looking for an opportunity to just simply love on people till they get saved, that's what our adopt a street's about. Um, we're just going to go out and pray that God opens doors, and and we get to talk to people, get to know them, offer them opportunities to be part of something, and if God opens the door to share the gospel, we'll do that too. Are there any more streets left, or did we fill them all up? Two more streets. So we had seven, then we had four, now we have two. So that's good. And we'll be launching out here pretty quick to hit those streets, so we need to pray that God fills those up. So when was the last time you sent someone, this is practical, just a card or or just let someone know you cared about them? You know, um, that is so important that the whole body does that. Sometimes you get in a church and some people will get cross or they'll get upset because I didn't get to visit them or, or what have you. But I will tell you, more times than not, people will stay in a church, and they can hate on me all they want, really, because I can only do so much for them. But when the body of Christ comes around and loves on them, you know, when a walk kind of shows up at their door or whatever and loves up on them and body parts, love on body parts, man, that just that makes people encouraged. And it really does because it shows a sincere love. Not that pastors shouldn't do that too, but I'm just saying it really is the job of everybody to love everybody. And when God puts it on your heart, just do it. You know, just love up on people that God tells you to love up on. Now, don't get weird. Okay, so let me put some parameters on this. If you're loving up on somebody because she's really good looking, then step back a few notches. Okay, step back. You know, there's appropriate boundaries here. So I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to encourage the, the people that don't need to be encouraged. But you know what I'm saying. Love up on people appropriately and biblically. And, uh, and you get what I mean. All right, so let's let's move on because again I need to keep moving. So let's talk about uh, the right response to this letter because that's what we want to have today. Down here in verse seven, 
this is similar to what we see in the introduction, right? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Right? So do you have an ear? I have an ear. Well, let's hear what God says. We, we all know Romans ten seventeen, right? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Uh, we can't hear, though, if we don't receive God's word. You know, over uh, over in the book of uh, John, you remember when Jesus was talking to uh, those Pharisees over there, um, and he, he asked a question. You're in trouble when Jesus asks a question about you and then answers it for you. You know that you're in trouble. And he does that with the Pharisees in uh, John eight forty three, He says, why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You know, that's one of the indictments of the, the, the church of Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Nobody's opening it. Nobody's hearing the word. Nobody's listening to the, the, the door. Jesus is also the door of the sheepfold. So he says, hey, guys, why can't you, you know, what is going on with you? How come you don't understand my speech? Isn't that he, they couldn't hear his speech, by the way. They did hear his speech. They just didn't understand it. And then he tells them, well, even because you, you cannot hear my word. And so then he says, you're not hearing my word. You're of your father, the devil, the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Well, there went gentle Jesus right out the door. I mean, he, I mean, he's just like busting them in the chops. They're accusing him of being born of fornication. The next thing you know, he's saying, hey, well, since we're talking about fathers, let me just tell you something. Your father's the devil because you can't hear my words. You know, Abraham didn't treat me like this, which just made him go crazy. And so uh, it says in verse 47, he that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not because you're not of God. And he's not holding back. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, say we not uh, well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil. And Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father and ye do dishonor me. And so they're at a they're at an impasse. And of course, after this, uh, they can't wait to kill Jesus because he's really calling them out. So we need to hear. That's the right response to the Ephesians. Is he says, "Hey, can you hear what I'm saying to you? Will you receive my words?" And of course, they can receive his words, and he wants them to receive his words, and that's why he's calling on them. If you have an ear, and he says this over and over, doesn't he? In the in the throughout the next two chapters, if you have an ear, then let him hear. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And so we got to make sure we're, we are not Nicolaitans, but we're like Nicodemus. And we listen to what Jesus says. Um, he goes on to say, um, he, that hath an ear, <clears throat> uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So this is the Spirit of God talking to the churches. And uh, we need to overcome. Each church has a, the option of victory, and each addresses an individual. Like Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, um, uh, it's one of those things where Daniel in Daniel 9, we take the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John and apply it personally to our lives. You know, in Daniel, Daniel was praying. He's like, God, you know, when are you going to restore your people? When is all this going to, how is this going to happen? How are you going to fulfill your word? Daniel prayed, and then you know what he did? He waited, and God answered him. And he heard what God said. And because he heard what God said, we hear what God says. And because of that, we can put what Daniel's prayer request together with this interaction with John 
And now we've got the revelation of Jesus Christ. Will we hear it? Each time the word overcometh in Revelation is found, it refers to individuals uh, and not always the churches as a whole. Notice it says to he that overcometh. Ultimately, you've got to take to him that overcometh. Well, I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Even though he's speaking to the churches, it's important that we individually listen, right? Uh, he's talking to the churches, but he's talking to you individually and me individually. And you'll see that consistently through the book of Revelation. The phrase to him that overcometh is mentioned in all seven churches. Uh, here in verse 7 in Ephesus, in verse 11 of Smyrna, in verse 17 in Pergamos, in Verse 26 of Thyatira in verse 5 of chapter 3 in Sardis, verse 12 in Laodicea, uh, and a mention as well in Revelation 21 and verse 7. And so notice the mention of the tree of life. This is the first mention of the tree of life in the New Testament. It's mentioned four times in Proverbs, in Proverbs 3.18, Proverbs 11.30, Proverbs 13.12, and Proverbs 15.4. And the previous to that in Genesis 2.9, you remember the, the tree of life. Um, was there in Genesis 2.9. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they had the tree of life available, and then it was taken. Genesis 3.22 and 3.24. A man is driven away in Jesus 3.24 and given the tree uh, again in Revelation 2.7. Why is this? I'm glad you're asking. Because Jesus has redeemed us, and we have been restored to his likeness and his image. So in the very first church in Ephesus, guess what you find? Access to the tree of of life and we preach a gospel when you get saved you are born again you have access to the the tree of life we're we're restored in his likeness and his image behold what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of god and then at the end of the book of revelation in chapter 22 and verse 2 and 22 and verse 14 you see the tree of life concludes the whole book and so you see that the tree of life is found in genesis and it closes in revelation chapter 22 and verse 14, with the tree of life. So it opens the book and it closes the book because God's eternal. So that concludes that. So I apologize for missing that detail. It's kind of wonky that I did that, but that just tells you how messed up I am. So forgive me. Uh, and now I want to move on to, uh, and we do have time for this. We're going to move on to Smyrna, Revelation 2.8. So if you're here, this is a good review. Does anybody need a Smyrna uh, outline? Any any Smyrna people um, that need a Smyrna outline? Pam, am I, are you my usher? Oh, she's my usher, my greeter. Here you go. Here, I'll just give these to you. Let me grab this so I know where I'm at. Thank you. And as uh, Pam is handing those out, just by way of review, uh, have we flipped over, Jesse? You guys are good. And they're doing a good job up in the booth. Even without you, Susan, they're doing a good job. So you're all, all the AV people are awesome. So we went to Smyrna, and I, I, I forgot that I didn't finish Ephesus. I just have to confess it and forsake it publicly. Uh, and then uh, we saw, and by the way, if you're wondering what our purpose here is, to understand the revelation of Jesus Christ so we can prepare ourselves for taking its fulfillment uh, as part of the bride of Christ. That, that last part's really important, as the bride of Christ. You don't want to be the fulfillment of anything else or you're in trouble. Um, and uh, also, uh, to increase our understanding of who God is and intensify our urgency in ministering the gospel in these last days, as I just spoke about. And so I gave you a review. Um, I'm not going to tarry with all this. We covered all of these things 
regarding Ephesus uh, at that time. And then the top of your sheet, it has the the uh, meanings of the names of all seven churches. Ephesus means fully purposed. Uh, Smyrna means bitterness and death. Um, Pergamos is much marriage. Thyatira, out of affliction. Um, Sardis, red one's brotherly love is Philadelphia. And rights of the people is Laodicea. Now you'll notice I've also put a prophetic church age. Um, for those of you at HBI, of course, we're covering these and uh, an incentive uh, to come back for church history. I'll do. I'll be doing a session on that on Wednesday nights. Um, not this year, but I think it's next year. And then also, um, uh, we will be offering a class in HBI. So uh, it's we're going through church history right now. So you might have to wait four more years for that one. But just an incentive. If you guys, you don't. I don't think. Is there anyone in HBI that's not taking a full load in here? So Mary, Mary's not, and Jamie's not. So you can take classes. But once you get through D2, uh, even if you can't enroll for the full, full, we want four-year students, full loads as, if we can, but not everybody can. So they take incremental, load, like a couple classes a semester or whatever. So I dive deeper. Would you say I dive a little deeper on, on the HBI? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you really want to dive deep, come on into HBI, and we'll dive deep. It's fun. Uh, it's vigorous, and it's it's good time. All right, so... Anyway, Matthew uh, 6 says this in verse 19 through 21. Lay not for yourselves treasures on earth where, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we want our treasure laid up in heaven. And uh, this church is a good church, uh, but they're under a lot of... Uh, they, they come under some persecution. So let's look at what the Lord says in verse 8. It says, And the angel of the church of Smyrna write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Uh, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Don't miss it. Just because you don't have nothing doesn't mean that you are nothing. Remember that. Just because you don't have nothing doesn't mean you are nothing. You can be, I mean, you can, I mean, I tell you what. Uh, Sharon De Leon back here, she's seen real poverty down in Guatemala. There's people that have nothing, but that doesn't mean you're nothing. Sometimes in our culture, people think because you have something, you are something. And then we, I don't know how many times can we actually see that's absolutely not true. There are so many bankrupts. Not, now, I'm not saying everybody that has financial resources is bankrupt because that's not true either. But we do know a lot of people with a lot of financial resources are absolutely bankrupt. And just because they have something doesn't make them something, right? And conversely, just because people have nothing, which is the most of the world uh, outside of the United States, uh, man, that doesn't mean they are nothing because God values them because of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ makes all of us something. And that's why Jesus is awesome to, in, in the true sense of the word. All right. So he's saying, guys, just because you have poverty, that you're rich. So don't don't mess it up. And I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews and are not. Uh, they're confused. They're, they had see identity confusion didn't just happen in the last, you know, five to ten years. People don't know what they are. That's been going on since the first century. There's people who think they're Jews and are not. And uh, Jesus says, "Hey, listen." Um, but they're the synagogue of Satan. They're identifying with the wrong group. For none of these uh, those things which thou shalt suffer. Or fear, I'm sorry, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall be uh, shall cast some of you into prison, and you shall be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, 
and I will give thee a crown of life. And he that uh, hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. He goes pretty light on this church because he knows what he knows they're they're hurting. Right? They're in poverty. They're in tribulation. Um, he's like, just guys, hang in there, endure. You're gonna go to prison. And I, historically, I think he's obviously telling them about those that were in prison for ten days. Historically, he's also, I believe, there's also ten Roman persecutions during the church history of that era. But there's also a prophetic application of this, I believe, in the coming tribulation. And there will be those that draw great comfort off of, of enduring uh, affliction until they are dead. And their salvation comes when they get killed. Not salvation. Their, 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 their faith is their salvation. But at the end of the day, their relief from the persecution is actually death. All right. So uh, moving on. So that's a, just review. So let's, let's remember uh, where we were. So we saw that uh, God had a salutation in verse 8. Um, we saw that uh, there was a, a reality check involved in all of this. And then uh, I want to flip through these verses and get to where there's a condemnation uh, in verse uh, in, in point B, God's condem, con, commendation, not condemnation, God's commendation, uh, commendation. He's saying, good job. This church, you think you're poor, but you're really rich. And so he tells them that this church is rich. And uh, we talk about how suffering for Christ is, is uh, more precious than gold that perisheth. Right. So they had the true riches. And so we talked about the true riches come at Christ's expense. We saw that in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 uh, through 11. In verse 8 it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The true riches come through Christ, right? He commends his love to us. And then we saw uh, in God's commendation, the true riches come at Christ's expenses, expenses, expense, I should say, Ugh. Pray for me. And then the true riches come at Christ's expense. Um, and so God uh, is keeping the books. And we talked about uh, some church history and how God is uh, keeping an eye on all those that have, have persecuted and hurt the church and so on and so forth. Um, and I got into uh, issues of per- church history with uh, Rome and uh, the persecutions that came from the ten great Roman persecutions, and we talked about the martyrdom of Polycarp and um, how God's keeping the books on all of those things. So you guys have slept since last week, uh, but we talked about that. And now, this is where I need to pick back up and finish up in the time we have remaining. We have the synagogue of Satan, the synagogue of Satan. Uh, I'll talk more about this as we progress, but... Um, the, the synagogue of Satan and church history. Because Smyrna's alliance with Rome uh, and the martyrdom of Polycarp, the Spirit of God points us to Rome. Uh, we know that Mystery Babylon religion is based in Rome, starting with paganism so, similar to that in Babylon. So for those of you that are familiar with the story of Ephesus, who was the great goddess? Anybody remember? Huh? Diana, right? And Diana was a fertility goddess. Have you ever seen pictures of her? She's got all these breasts, you know, and it's just, it's a perverse thing. Um, but you could also interchange Diana with, uh, uh, how many have heard of Venus, right? Uh, Venus, which is also a f- fertility goddess. So Satan has prepared the priests to worship in his temple. And that's why it becomes a synagogue of Satan. The foundation for modern priestly ritual 
and Mariolatry is set up in the time frame leading into the next period of history defined by the Church of Pergamos. Uh, and that name, if you remember the introduction, is much marriage. Pergamos is much marriage. And so, and so notice how God, uh, notice God does not say the devil, but specifically Satan. Like this is the synagogue of Satan. So he's specifically talking about Satan. He's, he's laying out some things here. And let me just take a commercial break and just explain why. So pause for a second. What is he doing? Uh, God is using the first three chapters of Revelation, and then we'll get to chapter 4. But eventually we're going to find our way to chapter 6, and you're going to see Satan roll up like Jesus on a white horse uh, and, 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 and implying that he's trying to bring peace to the world. Then suddenly it turns to war. Well, why is that important? Well, because you get to chapter 17, you're going to see Satan. He comes riding in on a beast. Right, And then he mentions this harlot. And mystery Babylon religion by name is a mystery that's being revealed. Not all of our New Testament mysteries came from Paul, though a lot did. Some of them we find right here in Revelation. And so he shows us a mystery. And uh, mystery Babylon religion, mother of harlots. And so, and so he's trying to point out how this progressed uh, and, and where this, this comes from. The Holy Spirit helps us as he goes through this and, and helps us understand um, how Satan is moving against God throughout history. So Satan will do everything in his power to deny uh, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the, the blood atonement, and the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who would believe and stand on these principles were martyred by the state of Rome by the thousands. Like if you believe those things at that time in church history from 200 to 325, 360-ish A.D., 325 for sure, you would get martyred if you exalted Jesus Christ to who he truly is as God, right? You are in trouble. Now, there was no Holy Roman Empire yet. Now, now historically, this church was was all within the first, you know, we're talking in the first hundred years, so that is not exactly what's being talked about historically in the historical context. I'm talking about that prophetic church age now, so I've kind of transitioned to that just to put context so you know what I'm talking about. But even in the first century, there were two primary uh, persecutors of the church. And they were pagan Rome and the Jews, of which Paul was one, you remember. And he took great delight in persecuting the church, zealously. So it's not any wonder in the first century you had a synagogue of Satan. Paul had to lead the synagogues in the first century. Uh, and um, he went full out with the Gentiles, as God revealed to him as the apostle of the Gentiles, and the church ended up growing. And, the, and we understand in retrospect, of course, it's a picture of Ruth and the mystery and the Gentile bride and all of those things. But in the first century, God, of course, initially is giving the opportunity to Israel to get the gospel, even after his resurrection, to get the gospel to the world, and even in the rejection, uses Jews that get converted to do such. Twelve apostles and the apostle Peter, or the apostle Paul, were all Jews. And even Apollos was a Jew who helped. And so, um, now of course it goes forward through Gentiles, for the most part. And in Christ, Paul says very clearly, through the, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly, through Paul, that in Christ there's neither what? Jew nor Greek, right? So, in Christ we're a new creature. So it is not about identity politics. It is not about Jew or Greek. It is not about black or white. Right? It's about a new man in Christ. Everyone needs to be born again. It just levels the playing field. Christ in us, the hope of glory. But that was a revelation. 
right? Because up until that point, God was really prophetically working through Israel to get the gospel to the Gentiles. We'll be preaching, I'll be preaching on it this coming Sunday in Exodus 19. When he takes Israel up to Sinai, what is he doing? He is preparing his nation to carry forth his word to the world, which is actually our job now. Uh, because Israel, you know, they stumbled and fell. But they will rise again soon. And that's why we're, that's why it's important to know this stuff that I'm talking about. Because there is a synagogue of Satan. There are those who say they are Jews and are not. They've adopted a Babylonian priesthood, full bore Babylonian priesthood, and they have taken on all the inheritance of the Jews. It's called replacement theology. It's popular not only in Rome, but in the church near you. Not in this church, but in a church near you. I promise you. And so replacement theology is as wicked as it comes. And so, you know, if you believe in replacement theology, you might as well just destroy Israel from the river to the sea. Because you don't believe Romans 9 through 11 is dealing with the restoration of Israel. You think you have taken the promises of Israel and applied them to yourself and you're the elect. And it's like, uh uh-oh, you've made a mistake. Okay, you see, so this stuff that I'm alluding to, and some of you are going to catch this, some of you are like, is he talking in parables? Okay, so that's okay. If, If this is going on over your head, that's fine. We'll get to it and we'll figure it out as you go. But just kind of bear with me. I just want to kind of set the, the stage and just let you know the things that we're reading here, yes, they, they, they have to do with what happened in history, but they're relevant as I stand here today. They're so relevant. You have a war in the Middle East right now with Israel and Gaza. And you have you have geopolitical forces. And you have people looking at us. And I, when I say us now, I am talking about me. And this church and churches like ours, we're not the only one. We're, there's millions and millions of us out here that have a, a biblical worldview that is opposed to Satan's agenda for the children of Israel. And Satan's church, his synagogue. You see what I'm saying? And because of that, the word Zionist is being applied in a derogatory fashion to those who would actually believe that Jesus Christ will literally literally return and establish his kingdom in Israel. And there are many today who will call themselves Christian and then point at us and say, you are the problem. That is why there's not peace in the Middle East. Because you have the Zionist fantasy about Israel. Well, how can they say that? Because they want to take on the promises of Israel themselves. And, listen to me carefully, when they do that, they put themselves solidly in the camp of Satan, and now we have a real battle coming. Ultimately, that's going to be settled by Jesus Christ at the second coming. That's how significant this theology is. And that's why God gives you the breadcrumbs as you walk through the seven churches. And then you walk right on into Satan and his kingdom, and you lay it all out, and it it correlates with what God was talking to Daniel about in the Old Testament. Why? Because as New Testament Christians, we are hearing, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Because this is how we know these things. And we understand the significance in time, right now, of the things that are ancient and yet future. Does that make sense? And if it doesn't, just keep hanging with me. So, Satan will do everything in his power to deny the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the blood atonement, the literal physical resurrection of Christ, and to destroy God's people, Israel. And, by the way, if he could destroy us, he would, but he can't. So, we're just eternal. Sorry. 
you know, you just send me, you send me, the bottom, bottom line is the devil takes me and you out, he just sends us home, and we come back, and when we come back, we're a lot scarier. So, uh, so look out, it, we've already won. And, uh, okay, so the basis uh, for Satan's synagogue will give, will be given to us in Pergamos. So I, I give it all this information, and I'm gonna have to tell you, and wait. Wait until I get to Pergamos, and I'll tell you more about it. Uh, but as we see the elements of worship in Satan's church come together, we also can clearly see uh, the Old Testament lead us right to this point of Israel rejecting their Messiah, and they're set up to be beguiled by the very Antichrist in the coming tribulation. I mean, now that's tomorrow's newspaper. Okay? And, and so Isaiah 28.9, let me get my verses ready here. Isaiah 28, I put this one on the screen for you. Isaiah 28.9 says this, Whom shall teach knowledge? You guys have heard this, but let me give it to you in a more different context than you're used to hearing it. Who shall teach knowledge and, and whom shall make to understand doctrine? Good question. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That's usually where we stop. And we say, you know what we should do? We should apply Scripture with Scripture. And that is an awesome devotional application of this passage, and I 100% agree with it, and I'm, that's why it's still in our discipleship lessons. But let me, let me rewind this tape and give you a context to look at it a little differently. You're in Isaiah chapter 28. This is historically written to the nation of Israel. I'm not just talking about devotional application. And there's a colon. And after that colon, it says, uh, for with a stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. What people? Somebody tell me. Who's he talking to? First rule of Bible study, context. Israel. Thank you, Ron. He's talking to Israel. This people specifically, historically, is dealing with Israel. All right? So let's just look at this from a prophetical perspective. When Jesus came to this earth, who did he teach knowledge? And, and to whom did he make understand doctrine? Well, his 12 apostles, correct? Yes, those guys. And he also presented himself, we just saw it in John chapter 8, to the Pharisees, Sadducees, those who were weaned from the milk, those who understood the Scriptures. He didn't go up to Pilate and say, or Herod and say, hey, let me explain to you the deep things of God. I'm now I'm the Messiah. I'm the prom. He didn't do. He didn't mess with the Gentiles. He didn't even give a flip about that. He was there to to, to deal with his nation. Don't get me wrong. He dealt. If if they would have received him, then he would have went to the Gentiles. He's very specific in his mission, which he came to his own, and his own received him not. And he came to the, to Nicodemus, and he came to the Sanhedrin, and he interacted with those people, and it ends up these fishermen and these. Tax collectors were the ones that actually took his message and went forward because, well, because of what it says. Uh, he was despised and rejected, right? We know those prophecies. And then with stammering lips and another tongue, he spoke to this people. And the next thing you know, these 12 rough fishermen, <laughs> tax collectors and Matthias, whatever that guy was, you know, these dudes start standing up and they start preaching. And uh, it's a crazy. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, and there little, <clears throat> and here, here little and there little. 
that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So when they rejected Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in the uttermost parts where the synagogues were, Jesus Christ became a stumbling block, a rock of offense. And he used people like us. I'm like tonight, I'm stammering and stumbling all over my words. He just used simple people that believed his word to preach to them, and they rejected it in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And they're going to be snared and taken. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, the previous church, he that hath an ear, ye scornful men that rule this people, which is in Jerusalem, if you have any doubts, because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell we are at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through it, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have hid ourselves. So we see here that uh, there's some people living some lies in the synagogue of Satan. There's some people today that say, Brian, 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 you are such a, a dispensationalist. Oh, Brian, oh, Brian, you don't understand that Israel's promises have been given to us. And if you really don't join our church, you're not in part of the true church. And the real truth, the truth of that matter is they're of the synagogue of Satan and they will marry some Jews. And they will bring in a kingdom and literally Antichrist will rule and reign it for a season before we come back and take it back with Jesus Christ. So it's coming. I'm just telling you. All right. So let's talk about the church's tribulation. Ten days. Ten days. Uh, so in verse 10, uh, we have this, this passage that says, and i got to hurry up and get this done. So, for none of these things which thou shalt suffer, uh, fear, not for, fear, no, no fear, uh, no fear. Fear none of the, those things, excuse me, which thou shalt suffer, Behold, the, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and that ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So, first point here is no fear, right? No fear. Second Timothy, by the way, that, that's, an, that's I think that Pete Ruckman did that, that painting, if my recollection is right. That's a, during this season. This is when they would put the Christians in, in the Colosseums and enjoy them suffering. At the hands of uh, of lions and all kinds of things, you got the got them praying, and here's your Christians hanging up on the crucifixes, burning, as Nero, you know, yeah, in Rome, yep, the Colosseum. Yeah, well, Nero literally lit, lit up Rome with Christian bodies. Yeah, yeah, so he's got the bodies ablaze right there. That's what's these are bodies burning. These guys aren't on fire yet, and these guys are waiting. Just That's a good picture, just to kind of consider. You thought you had a rough day. Anyway, I, I'd like to say more, but time will not allow. So, no fears. So let me, let's just run through some passages that we know, but we need to hear. 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. But what he has he given us? Well, but of power and of love and of a... Sound mind. We got the book. We got the mind of Christ. 
Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. So, beloved, I just need to mention that this is in the midst of the Pauline epistles. This is not a tribulation end times passage. This is advice to us. This is advice to our friends in Asia. This is advice to our friends in the Middle East, our brothers in the Middle East. And this could be advice to you any given day because you never know what tomorrow shall bring. But we should not, we don't have a spirit of fear. That's one of the things that troubles the powers that be, by the way. When you're like, you know, like a few years ago it was, you know, you, you need to enroll with this, that. I'm like, well, my mom's calling me. Mom, if you're watching, you know this is true. Well, Brian, you need health insurance. I'm like, well, Mom, what did your grandparents do? What did your mom and dad do? They didn't, they didn't have health insurance. Now, I'm not, I do have health coverage, so don't worry about that. But my point is, is like, I'm not going to get freaked out. Like, just, it's cool. You know, there's some things that are worth dying for even. You know, okay, I'd rather be free than and die. Rather than be a slave. You know, there's some things we're dying over. That kind of mindset, it's like anathema. Because if you're not if you're not given to fear, well, then you're not very controllable. So just FYI. So just understand, I'm not saying you shouldn't have wisdom, and I'm not saying if the building's on fire, just don't stand there, leave the building, <laughs> right? Uh, but you know what fear will do, make, you, make bad decisions. One time I was in Brazil, and we got in this shootout, in the, down near the airport. We went down to the airport. I don't remember why, but uh, we were down at the airport for some reason, and then we were coming back, and there's international highway goes right next to the airport, and right, and the train station's across the highway of the international, uh, the international highway. So we come out of the parking lot of the airport, go over the walkway, and we're getting ready to get on the train. And then, uh, if you know, my, uh, Brazil's a narco state, right? So, you know, and they're fighting the drug war or whatever. This has been, you know, 15, 18 years ago. It's been a long time ago. I think Bob Bolkin was with us on this trip. And so we're standing at the train station, and all of a sudden, you know, and there's this, the cars pull up. In the, I mean, like we're like talking like from here to the wall is the, is the road. And uh, like this corner is about the distance. And so, boom, there's a car. Police got their guns out. Bullets start flying. Bam, bam, you know, just, you know, and it's, it's third world. You know, there's just bullets going everywhere, so you don't know. So everybody hits the deck. And my my reaction was the train tracks are right here, and, there, and it's 36 inches or so down. What do you think my first thought was? Yeah, my first thought. I mean, I'm like walking, ready to jump, and right before I'm ready to jump down, I look, and there's a train. I'm not joking. Probably about the entrance of our building coming down the tracks. And I was like, <gasps> and now I went from fearing bullets to fearing. I mean, I was just a hair's breadth. If I'd have been had any more adrenaline, or lack of judgment, I would have jumped in front of a train, and I would have been dead. And I never forgot that. I was thinking, oh, God, thank you for not. And that train was our deliverance. It didn't, it didn't even know there was a gun. We all just jumped on it, and then we took off. I don't know what happened out there in the road. I'm sure they gunned down their guy, and away they went. But, you know, everybody else hit the deck. I'm about ready to jump in front of a train. You know what caused me to do that? Fear. I wasn't, my mind wasn't right. I didn't, I didn't, I was just responding. And I was just a breath, hair's breadth away from being a casualty in a third world country, jumping in front of a train like a crazy person, just because I was scared of some gunfire. Which, by the way, that's a good thing to be scared of. You should hit the deck. 
I'm not saying don't take cover, but I'm saying we our minds got to be right. You know, you got to be sober-minded. And uh, spiritually, we can't allow things to just freak us out. You got to let the Word of God, uh, you know, take care of your your conscience. So First John four, I got to keep moving because I'm over time. Um, he says there is is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect, right? Not complete in love. We love him because he first loved us. If any man say, I I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? In this, uh, in this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. Sorry, you can't you can't say you love God if you hate your brother. You just can't. And you're deceiving yourself. And so there's no fear because perfect love casts out fear. All right, so 10 days. Uh, there were 10 pagan Roman persecutions. Um, and so the historical account must be referencing a time of proving. Uh, but in, in Scripture, the Bible uses 10 as a, as a, as a number of the Gentiles. Uh, it also is used to prove things out. Daniel and his buddies waited 10 days to see how things would work out in Daniel uh, 1.12 and Daniel 1.14. 10 days is also referring to those 10 Roman persecutions I've mentioned uh, from 200 to 325, beginning with Nero and then going to Domitian, Domitian, Domitian uh, Trajan, Marcus, Aurelius, uh, Severus, uh, Maximum, uh, Decius, Valerian, and Diocletian. So it's no coincidence that the number 10 references the Gentiles in the Bible. The powers of Satan were channeled through Gentile rulers, and it, it gets worse uh, in the next church age, so you got to hold on to your hats. So there's 21 Roman Catholic persecutions against the Christians. There's 10 pagan Roman persecutions, 21 Roman Catholic persecutions of Christians, of Bible-believing Christians. So it's no coincidence and some of you don't even know that, so we'll get into that later. So non-believers have cons- or I'm sorry, not non-believers. The believers have consolation as we as we wrap this thing up. Uh, there's the crown. Of, that brother's been persecuted. He's something else. Uh, so uh, let's talk about the consolation, and I'll be done. In Revelation 20, or two and verse 10, there's the crown of life that's mentioned there. And so in James 1:12, it says, "Blessed is the man that." Endure temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted of evil. <clears throat> Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. So notice this crown of life is not a promise of salvation, but a promise of those who are saved and faithful unto death. Uh, the crown that we would call the martyr's crown, given to those who are saved and endure persecution faithfully. We inherit eternal life, we are saved, and we inherit a crown of life when we are faithful unto death in service for our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that? So we're not inheriting eternal life. We have that when we get saved. But you inherit the crown of life when you suffer unto death for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. The judgment seat of Christ will take place in heaven while the tribulation of Daniel's 70th week commences on earth, there will be crowns given to believers who are faithful in their works after salvation at that time. So you can find the, the crowns in James 1.12. And I give you, I, I don't think I gave you all those. Are those in your notes? Okay. Oh, there we go. I've already, 
yeah, there's all your references. For time's sake, you can look those up. Uh, those are the crowns, uh, and they are similar to your uh, discipleship lesson for those of you in D1. All right, so let me finish with this, and thank you for your patience. Freedom from the second death is also uh, a part of this, and this will we'll finish up on that. That leads us right back to Revelation 2.8. We are free from the second death because of the power of Christ's resurrection. Revelation 20 and 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And, beloved, that's what we're going to do. So back to where we started, what are we investing in? Right? Uh, what are we investing in? Matthew 6.33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And uh, you know what? These people thought they were poor. They were persecuted. They were in tribulation. But God says, hey, listen, you're rich. I'm not going to add anything else to you. Just just endure 10 days. And, man, this crown is yours. And so just, just hang in there and believe me at my word, and I'll get you through. And as we close tonight, uh, next week we'll get into Pergamos. Oh, actually, that pauses me. I will be on pause until after uh, until April. So we got, uh, we're gonna ha- I may have one session at the end of March, and then we're going to go into the Vision Conference the first full week of April 7th through the 10th, which, by the way, be making plans now to be here uh, for that. Uh, we're going to have an AV meeting tonight to talk a little bit about what's coming. It's going to be exciting. You're going to have living history. It's going to be a good time. We're going to have missionaries in. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and then we'll be back to the Church of Pergamos. So we'll be, we're going to put the pause button on this for a little while. Uh, but we will come back to it. So I'm glad you guys have been coming so faithfully. All right, any questions tonight before we dismiss? I know we're over time. Uh, uh, Luke is going to talk about financial. Uh, he's got a session on financial stewardship, which is part of our annual uh, cycle. we got a cycle of classes that we do on Wednesday night, and it just happens that that's the best time for him. So I said, this is such a long series. You guys will get tired of me talking anyway, so we'll just pause it. And then we'll get back to the, this when, we, when he's done. So I'm trying to help with the schedule, with his schedule. Um, and it'll, uh, it'll, be a good, it'll be a good time. So make sure you come for that because um, he's putting a lot of effort into that. And so, um, okay, thank you. Any other questions? Are you guys picking up what I'm laying down okay? All right, if you've got any questions, let me know. And uh, appreciate your time. These are up online again with the, with the sermons, so you should be able to find them. Uh, online as well if you didn't get them and then next time we get together for this study we'll be in Pergamos which will probably be the last week of March or the uh, second full week of April all right and so let's uh, have a word of prayer we'll be, let's stand together you guys have been sitting a long time let's stand up stretch our legs oh by the way if anybody needs any nerf bullets I have some up here I need to get rid of left over from this last Sunday so those need a home. I don't really have a purpose for them at Heartland here, so someone needs to take them. All right, so uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank for this time just to get together. Thank you for these that are, uh, you know, att- intently uh, listening to two conclusions of two different church periods. Lord, somehow draw all this together tonight for your honor and glory and make it uh, congruent. Um, and it is educational that in each one of those, Lord, you tell us, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the church is. Every one of these seven churches has attributes that uh, we can admire and warnings that we need to adhere to. And so, Father, we do pray that we would be balanced and and have the best attributes of these seven churches and avoid the pitfalls of all these seven churches. 
And, Lord, I do pray that when it comes to being patient in tribulation, being full of faith and love, Lord, that we would uh, have all of those things. We'd ha- we would not lose our first love as they did in Ephesus and that we would endure patiently as needed, uh, Lord, knowing that you are just and the justifier of those uh, that come to you, Lord, and you will reward those that endure patiently. And so we thank you for those that have, uh, so many have given their life uh, to advance the gospel, and you've preserved your word and your church, and Lord, we're so thankful that we are here today uh, to finish out this leg of, of history, and we pray, God, we'd be faithful until you come and call us out. We thank you for this time tonight. We pray a blessing on the reading and the hearing of the word. Pray for the parents as they pick up their kids. Pray, God, that you are encouraged. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.